Thank you, Pam, for helping us to hear that song with new ears this morning. And thank you, Sarah, for your leadership with us today. I was born and raised, born and bred, as we say, here in Texas, and I have an illogical love for Texas most days, most days. I believe Texas has the best state flower, the blue bonnet. We have the best barbecue. You can eat it, Kansas City. I believe that we have the best music. It's pouring one out for ZZ Top this week. We have the highest Capitol building in all of America, higher than the U.S. Capitol, which is very on-brand for Texas. We're the only state that can fly our state flag at the same level as the American flag, the Lone Star State. We have auto manufacturers who make specialized trucks with our state's mottos on them because I guess our egos are just that fragile. No, 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 no. I love Texas. You'll understand. I love Texas. I have all the obnoxious Texas t-shirts, and, so, and I love it so much that even my birthday has special significance in Texas history. I was born on March 6th, with it, which any Texas historians in the room know that was the day that the Alamo fell after 13-day-long siege from Santa Ana's forces in the fight for Texas independence, right? We all remember the Alamo. Even if you aren't a Texan, everybody around the world, practically, if you've seen Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, you remember the Alamo when those brave men fought for independence at the Alamo all those years ago. And so you can bet that whenever Reagan and I went on a road trip with our daughter Andy this past summer and we stopped in San Antonio, you know what we stopped by to see. We stopped to see the Alamo, which... For the record, is one of the more unimpressive buildings you can happen upon in a major U.S. city. You're like walking through downtown San Antonio, and suddenly there it is. You're like, that, that's the Alamo? You know, yep, that's, that's the one. We say remember the Alamo. The Alamo's legacy has been under fire recently with the release of a book that you may have heard about called Forget the Alamo. It's caused something of a firestorm as the, as the authors uh, attempt to deconstruct some of the myths that have formed around not just the Battle of the Alamo itself, but the events leading up and the history that followed these last 185 years. The myths that have formed in our state's collective memory. Notably, the authors of this book, they rely upon a 2015 work by scholar Andrew J. Torgett called Seeds of Empire, where uh, this historical scholar proves that one of the central motivators for Texas independence in the Battle of the Alamo was not, in fact, liberty, but was more centrally slavery. Because the nation of Mexico, which controlled the region of Texas, had nominally Ill illegalized slavery in those days. Now that makes for an uncomfortable conversation when your five-year-old daughter who is there visiting the Alamo with you looks up and says, Daddy, what is this place? How do you answer that question? Daddy, what is this place? How do you unpack the myth and the history and the deep, my wife would say, insane love and also the deep, what we can all acknowledge as many times forgotten pain that comes with the myth and the history intertwined? all while stuck in a tourist trap. That's an uncomfortable conversation. Today we're going to continue our series called Blessed Are the Uncomfortable, and we're going to talk about confronting uncomfortable pasts and uncomfortable presents, as we've already begun to practice here in worship today. And the guiding text for us this morning is going to be the book of Amos. I want us to talk about myth, how it can help us, how it can hurt us, and where we can find hope as a people of faith. Because as people of faith, we've got to wrestle with the concept of myth. It's woven into who we are. It's woven into our scriptures. And if we mishandle it, 
If we allow it to be mishandled by ourselves and by others, then we will, I fear, end up in a place that is mainly hurtful for most everybody. And Amos is going to help us to understand why. The book of Amos, if you're unfamiliar, and I'm going to assume that a lot of us are unfamiliar, he's one of the minor prophets. Don't you love that? You make it into the Bible and they still call you minor, right? One of the minor prophets in the Hebrew Bible, one of the 12. He's the original one, OG. Uh, He's not a professional prophet in the traditional sense. In those days, there were professional prophets. They would work at the service of the king or the queen's court. And as you might imagine, A lot of professional prophets were frequently lambasted uh, by the prophets of the Hebrew Bible because professional prophets were reliant upon that wealth and that power that would come from the king or the queen, and as a result, they were regarded as dealing too softly with their own nation. No, Amos was not a professional prophet. He was a sheep herder, and he was a fig farmer. In his voice, you could hear the rasp of a man who'd spent years calling sheep in the pastures. His hands were calloused and bore the burdens of the common and the poor in Israel. Amos lived in this border region between the southern kingdom of Judea and the northern kingdom of Israel. And his prophecy is primarily for Israel. Israel had been independent for about 150 years, not unlike Texas, in fact. And it was ruled by a king named Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II is the kind of king that you'd think you'd want. Because he was a mighty military conqueror. He was powerful. He was masculine. He acquired wealth and power and glory for some people in Israel. What he also opened up in his nation was idolatry and idol worship, I-D-O-L worship. And that was a problem for Amos and a problem for others of the Jewish tradition because, as we'll see this morning, uh, the Jewish tradition connected worship of God with care and compassion for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. And so as Jeroboam opened up Israel to idolatrous worship, as, as their eyes were no longer fixated upon the God who had delivered them, the God who had broken their bondage, the God who had brought them into prosperity, they also began to lose sight of the poor and the oppressed the care and the compassion that went along with such worship. The book of Amos is not really a book. It's more a collection of sermons and poems and visions that are woven together, threaded together, that Amos delivered to the people of Israel out of protest for who they had become and who they were becoming under the leadership of Jeroboam II. And myth and history are all wrapped up in this text. So he opens in chapter 1. If you go home and read the book of Amos. It's only nine chapters. He opens in chapter one with this sort of parallelism, this litany of calling out surrounding nations. He starts with Damascus. He says, Damascus, these are your sins. This is your unrighteousness. He's speaking on behalf of God. And then he moves to Gaza and Ashdod. And then he moves to Tyre. And then he moves to Edom. And then he moves to Ammon. And then he moves to Moab and then Judah until finally, do you see what he's doing? He's circling in closer and closer, letting the tension build and build and build. And he's saying, look at all these nations around you, Israel, who are so unrighteous and so full of sin. And then he says, guess what? Guess what? You are too. And not just you are too, but you are even more so. When he gets to Israel, for the previous nations, he's offered three, four, maybe five verses of condemnation. But when he arrives at Israel, he offers 11 verses in chapter 2, and then the remaining seven chapters of the book of Amos are all about Israel. And why is God so angry in the voice of Amos with Israel? Well, let's read. In chapter 2, Amos says, the Lord proclaims, For three crimes of Israel and for four, I won't hold back punishment because they have sold 
the innocent for silver. And those in need, they have sold for a pair of sandals. They crush the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken in loan. And in the house of their God, they drink wine bought with the fines they imposed. The corruption of the very worship practices themselves. And then we get to the heart of the matter when, when Amos says, in the voice of the Lord, Amos says, Also, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to lay claim to the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your children to be prophets and some of your youth to be Nazarites. Isn't this so? O Israel, isn't this so, says the Lord. Amos is calling them back to these stories, these mythologies, we could say, of Genesis and Exodus. And when I say myth, I mean stories that are not so much about the concrete, factual, historical nature of the stories, but more about the depth of meaning underneath. Myths come in very many different forms. And they were important for the Israelites, as we'll find in a, in a moment. These were formative stories of the identity for the Israelites to have life breathed into you out of dust, to say that God held each of us in God's hands and breathed life into us, to say that God liberated us so that we could be liberators. God blessed us so we could be a blessing. These were formative stories. But these were texts that were not meant to be taken historical in a literal, factual sense, but mythical in the way that they were more about their meaning. Myths are incredibly helpful as a people of faith, and casting a vision of who we are meant to be through the lens of narrative storytelling. Think about the parables of Jesus, for instance. Jesus used this style of teaching frequently. The Good Samaritan was not about how you can be a literal good person from Samaria. The prodigal son is not how you can be a prodigal son going back to a father. The Good Samaritan is about how to care for those who we cross in our paths. The prodigal son is about, to be, is about being someone who can receive the grace of God even when you feel unworthy. Myths work in a, in a similar way. Myths can be a helpful tool for finding identity and personal meaning and purpose in our lives. And unfortunately, like most tools, myths can also be used as weapons. See, the root sin for Israel was that they had lost sight, that the myth was meant to be an ideal worth working for, and instead they'd begun to believe in the myth as literal history and actual reality, and they began to undo the very ideals that they had, that what, they, what they claimed to hold. Amos says, remember when you were brought out of dust and had life breathed into you, you are now crushing the poor into the dust of the earth. Remember when God liberated you out of Exodus or out of Israel and brought you into prosperity, you are now robbing prosperity from the common people and you are placing them back in chains. In the stories of Abraham, God called and claimed Israel not as some people who were going to lord over all of the earth and wealth and power, but rather as a nation whom could be the source of blessing for all other nations. They were called to be a different kind of people, and yet here under Jeroboam II, Israel reflected the sins of those around them even more so. They'd become the very source of injustice and unrighteousness. Rather than holding their position as God's people with humility as intended, they began to believe in their own exceptionalism. Hmm? That somehow they were above the unrighteousness that plagued others. And once a core identity of your nation becomes one of perfection, my friends, do you hear me? It becomes nearly impossible to take seriously the brokenness or imperfections of the present day. 
I wonder if we can hear the words of Amos today. I wonder if our American ears can hear the word of the Lord that Amos is crying out this morning. My daughter Andy is five and a half, and don't get it twisted, she is five and a half. She just crossed the half marker, and she is going to kindergarten on Wednesday. I have a lot of feelings about it. I don't want to talk about it right now. It's a lot to unpack. When I was her age going to, to school, one of the things that my parents, I'm sure, would be looking forward to in those days was uh, when Thanksgiving would come around, there'd be the, the Thanksgiving um, play, right? The pilgrim play where the kids get all dolled up like pilgrims and Native Americans. Then we reenact that totally factual moment where everybody got together around a table and passed the grits and the gravy, and then they watched football, and everything was fine, and it was good. It was great. It was awesome. It looked a lot like this, right? This is the idyllic myth of that Thanksgiving moment that has been seared into our mythos as American people. And yet when we dig deeper, we learn the truth about the first English settlers and the Wampanoag people in those early American colonies. And now they didn't bring baskets of generosity with them from across the pond. They, they brought an epidemic that wiped out thousands Tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands. They, they brought with them within a generation, they brought war. The King Philip's War, which would be the bloodiest war in the colonies in the 17th century. This is a more accurate picture of what Thanksgiving truly looked like. But that doesn't make as good of a myth. That doesn't look cute for a bunch of kindergartners to act out. It can be hard to have our myths undone or to look closer, dig deeper at what actually has taken place. I experienced this personally a few years ago when I was watching a show on HBO Max called Watchmen. I don't know if anybody else has seen that show. And um, the opening, uh, the pilot episode, the opening of that episode takes place in 1921 and it's set in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I was watching as it showed the set of this, you know, very wealthy, very affluent black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then suddenly there was this white mob carrying rifles and fire and flying planes overhead, dropping bombs. It looked like a war zone in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. And do you know what I thought to myself in that moment? Wow, this show is doing an alternate history kind of thing. How interesting. Because I had never learned about the Tulsa massacre. I'd never heard about the Tulsa bombings. I didn't know about Black Wall Street. They didn't teach us that in the school where I grew up. I learned about internment camps. I learned about the Trail of Tears. I learned about slavery. But all that stuff was a long time ago. And, and here we've got a war zone in a major U.S. city in the 20th century. And I'd never even heard about it. There are students who grew up in Tulsa, black students growing up in Tulsa, who had never learned about this, who were my age. We can talk about how we know white supremacy is evil. We know that the sin of racism runs deep. But my friends, we have to dig deeper because as long as we are watching HBO shows and they're teaching us something about our history that we still didn't know, there is more digging to be done. And yeah, it's uncomfortable to see my face, not in the heroes, but in the mob. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to dig deeper and learn the truth behind the myth. I want to say that learning the deeper truth behind so much of our history has not led me to hate who we are as a nation or who we are as a state or who we are as a people, but rather to see more clearly the differences between our ideals and our realities because they are far apart, very far apart at times. 
I think that we can agree that we share a common ideal as a people of generosity, as evidenced by the Thanksgiving myth. We'd like to believe that that was true, but we are also a people deeply rooted in the very ungenerous and violent culture of colonialism. I know that freedom is one of the greatest named ideals in our nation because of all the things we always talk about freedom, but we are also a land where to this day people of color continue to suffer the sting of racism, both personal and systemic. To acknowledge as much is not to deny one's love for one's own people. In fact, it is quite the opposite. It is to stake that love in the frequently painful reality of the way that things are. And that is ultimately how myth fails us the most. When myth replaces history, denial replaces reality. Do you hear me, church? When myth replaces history, denial replaces reality. Hear now the words of Amos in chapter 5. He says, They hate the one who judges at the city gate, and they reject the one who speaks truth. Don't mess with our myths. Truly, because you crush the weak and because you tax their grain, I know how many are your crimes and how numerous are your sins, afflicting the righteous, taking money on the side, turning away the poor who seek help. And then God says this in verse 21, I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. If you bring me your entirely burnt offerings and gifts of food, I won't be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. When myth replaces history, denial replaces reality. The powerful in Israel were unable to see the reality of what was taking place because they had become so fixated on their own power, prosperity, and perfection. And any threat to that perception was a threat to them. And so it continued until the very fabric of their society began to rip itself apart. Can you hear the ripping? They would end up conquered not too long after Amos' time, historically speaking. And while hypotheticals will always favor the armchair historian, you could argue that one reason they were conquered was the inner turmoil as a nation whose working class and poor were mistreated, neglected, and forgotten. God does not desire people of faith to be divorced from reality, my friends. In fact, Amos reminds us that true worship comes when we are attuned to the needs of those around us and naturally flow towards generosity and humility. Amos says, but let justice roll down like waters, let righteousness flow like an ever-flowing stream. That word for righteousness is the Hebrew word tzedakah which isn't some sort of ambiguous idea of what it means to be righteous. It means equity, respect, dignity amongst all peoples despite social differences. It's concrete, it's tangible, it's real. The word for justice is mishpat. Again, not some faraway idea, not some you know clou clouds in the sky idea, but it is concrete actions. Mishpat is concrete actions taken to correct injustices. A truly faithful people, a truly faithful nation, Amos says, is one that holds tzedakah and mishpat as sacred as a holy text or as a stained glass sanctuary. Tzedakah, mishpat, 
equity amongst all peoples, concrete actions of justice. Let this be your worship. Let this be your reality. Now, Amos brings the heat through most of his book. If you go home and read it right now, I'm going to promise you it's a tough read. Amos does not have kind words to share with Israel, but there is good news to be had. There's good news for our ears to hear this morning as well. In chapter 9, towards the very end, Amos finally makes a turn and says this, On that day, he's speaking in the name of God, In that day I will rise up, or I will raise up, the meeting tent of David that has fallen, and repair its broken places. I will raise up its ruins, and I will rebuild it like a long time ago. Like a long time ago. Now, I'm going to take artistic license with Amos's artistic language, but I don't think Amos is talking about some golden age that never actually existed. Because remember, the good old days for some of us may have been the really crappy old days for the rest. Instead, what I believe Amos is calling us towards is, is seeing something in those myths that we know can define us in many ways. They give us the ideals, the morning stars to point towards. Amos's words hold a promise that God will help us to concretely build not just what has been before, not turning back to what we wish could come again, but what those faithful ideals full of justice and righteousness captured mystically in our myths, what remain just out of reach that may never have actually occurred. As God helps us deconstruct myth from mystery, my friends, as God leads us to hold each as intended myth and history, as God guides us in rebuilding something better than what was and what is, that is where our hope will be found. By digging deeper, asking uncomfortable questions, hearing uncomfortable answers, learning uncomfortable stories, allowing the myths to be myths, and finding what actually happened in the rest of the story. That is good and faithful work, church. And so should we remember the Alamo or forget it? I believe that Amos leads us to remember that myth and history all too often go hand in hand, sometimes so woven together we can hardly tell the difference, and the faithful work before us is often confronting an uncomfortable past so that we can deal with a painful present so that justice and righteousness would flow in all our futures. Amen.